Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Proverbs chapter 3. In uh, Proverbs chapter 3, we'll be <clears throat> reading from, again, verse 27 to the end of the chapter, but our focus will be actually from verses 31 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord in Proverbs chapter 3. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. <clears throat> now again, as we have considered Proverbs chapter 3 verses 27 to the end of the chapter, so far, we have seen that Solomon positively exhorts us to do good unto our neighbor, while at the same time he warns us, or he has warned us, against two things. He first warns us in verse 27 against devising harm against our neighbor. And then later on he says, do not contend with your neighbor without cause. Now today, Solomon will warn us against another evil. That is the evil of envy. Again, if you recall last week, we said that at the root of those who devise harm against their neighbor stands hatred. It is hatred that causes a man or a woman to quarrel. Hatred is the fountainhead from which these sins flow, and hatred also fuels envying. Now, I remind you again of the sins listed in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, which we looked at last week. In that third category of sins, we find this list. It says enmities, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. Again, envy, as it relates to verse 31, will be the focus of our study today. Now, in the first place, this word translated as envy in our Bibles has a range of meaning, as we will see. And so we will consider the topic of envy along the following three lines. First, we will look at the definition of envy. Then we will look at the object of envy. And then finally, we will look at the cure 
for NV. So the definition, the object, and the cure. Again, Solomon writes, do not envy a man of violence. Now, the Hebrew word translated as envy is the word kana. It is a glowing or a reddening. Picture, if you will, it's a cold night in January and everyone's gathered around the fire pit and the wood has been burning for some time. And as you look into the fire pit, there are small pieces that glow red. Now, even though that piece might not be on fire, if you were to touch it, you would still be burned. And that is kana. It is a burning. Or to use another illustration for those of my lighter skin brothers, in certain instances, you might be able to see when you get angry, right? It, you see a reddening that takes place in the face, right? We often uh, sometimes use this, um, this saying, you know, my blood was boiling. Again, this is the idea of kana. It is a burning or a boiling up of desire. Now, to go a little bit deeper with this word, it is also translated as jealous and also as zealous in our English Bibles. And this is where the context of the passage truly dictates what would be the best word to be used in a particular text. This is important to note because jealousy and envy, while they are related, are not synonymous. As one lexicon notes, we are jealous for our own. We are envious of another man's possessions. Jealousy fears to lose what it has. Envy is pained at seeing another have. And so the point that I want to make by saying that is that the Hebrew word translated as jealous or zealous or envious is not categorically good or categorically bad. The Hebrew word kana is like anger, right? There is righteous anger, and then there is also unrighteous anger. Likewise, there is righteous jealousy and unrighteous jealousy. And so, for instance, we read in Numbers chapter 25, verse 11, it says, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous, that's our word, with my jealousy among them. So I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Again, in Numbers 25, God commends Phineas for Kana. This is a good Kana. It is a godly jealousy. Again, over in the New Testament, 
Paul himself speaks of a godly jealousy in 2 Corinthians 11.2. This text states, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Now in 2 Corinthians 11.2, the... Apostle Paul pictures himself as a father who is jealous for the purity of his virgin daughter. He has a passionate desire that she would remain pure until the day that she is presented to her husband, who is Christ. Now, notice that there is a natural assumption by the Apostle Paul that Fathers would protect the purity of their daughters with a good and godly jealousy. Again, fathers, hear me today. Be jealous for the purity of your daughters. This is a good thing. Now, going back to the Old Testament, this word jealous is even applied to God himself. Exodus 34, verse 14 states, For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In this passage, we see that God so much so identifies with jealousy that he says that his very name is Jealous. Now, This is not literal, of course, but in this context, God is here emphasizing his displeasure with idolatry. God makes it clear to all creation that he alone is to be worshipped. Now, in a sermon entitled, A Jealous God, Spurgeon says this, Can you put yourself in God's place for a moment? Suppose that you had made the heavens and the earth and the earth and all the creatures that inhabit this round globe. How would you feel if those creatures should set up an image of wood or brass or gold and cry, these are the gods that made us. These things give us life. What a dead piece of earth set up in rivalry with real deity? What must be the Lord's indignation against infatuated rebels when they so far despise him as to set up a leek or an onion or a beetle or a frog, preferring to worship the fruit of their own gardens or the vermin of their muddy rivers, rather than acknowledge that God in whose hand their breath is and whose are all their ways." Oh, it is a marvel that God had not dashed the world to pieces with thunderbolts when we recollect that even to this day, millions of men have changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and the birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things, end quote. Now, as... 
Spurgeon alludes to in that quote, Kana also carries with it this idea to provoke to anger. We see this all throughout the scriptures. And for the sake of time, I'll give us just two examples. Proverbs 6, verse 34. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Then there is Deuteronomy 32, verse 16, which states, They made him, speaking of God, jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. Now, in both cases, in one case that speaks of men, and in the other case that speaks of God, we see that jealousy provokes to anger. Now, the anger of man is always or often unrighteous, but the anger of God is always righteous. And so God is jealous for his own honor and glory. But not only is God jealous for his own honor and glory, but he is also jealous for his people. Again, Zechariah chapter 8 verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Now again, this gives us more insight into this word, kana. There is a similarity between the jealousy that a man has for his wife and the jealousy that God has for his wife, the church. Again, think of it like this. Husbands, there is a righteous zeal or jealousy that would bubble up if someone were to slanderously accuse your wife of harlotry. This would be a righteous response. It is right to seek to guard and to protect our wife's honor. On the other hand, if the accusation proved to be true, there may be a different type of jealousy that arises. This is what is pictured with God and his people. There is a righteous zeal to defend and protect his people, while at the same time there is righteous anger and jealousy expressed against his people for unfaithfulness. Again, it is no wonder then that in this context we see that jealousy most often appears in the marriage union. In fact, so close is the tie in scripture that God refers to his people as his wife and himself as a husband. And the sin of idolatry is as the sin of adultery in marriage. Now, consider for a moment that not all sins carried with it the death penalty under the old covenant. Idolatry 
and adultery did, however, and this should cause us to soberly consider unfaithfulness in marriage through adultery, as well as unfaithfulness to God through idolatry. This again informs us of our understanding of the weightiness of this word, kanah. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, well, we only got through one word in the first verse, and we have several verses to go through. Are you going to make it to the end of the passage? Well, I'd like you to know that we are about to move on to point number two. Again, going back to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 31, we see that the type of kana that Solomon warns the wise son against is not a righteous jealousy, but an unrighteous type of jealousy. It is the type of jealousy better translated as envy. Say, why is that? Well, first, this kana is unrighteous because of its nature. At the root of this type of jealousy is a burning desire for the property and possessions of another. It is therefore more akin to covetousness, which God forbids. And then in the second place, this type of jealousy is unrighteous because of its object. Now this leads us, finally, to point number two, the object of envy. Again, Solomon says, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. In the first place, Solomon warns us against envying a man of violence. Now, all the ways of a violent man, as you may expect, are violent. And this word translated as violence means wrong, cruelty, and injustice. It was the same word used to describe the antediluvians before the days of the flood. In Genesis 6:11 it states now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. Again in Genesis 49 verse 5 when Israel is prophesying over his sons he says of Simeon and Levi that their swords were implements of Hamas which translates as violence. Now, the curse pronounced here by their father was a result of the revenge that the brothers executed against Shechem. The brothers essentially slaughtered a whole city of men. And so this word violence, as in the case of Simeon and Levi, is often linked with human bloodshed. 
Ezekiel 7:23, for instance, says, Make the chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. Again, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 12 says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Jumping down to verse 17 of the same passage, the text says, For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the towns and all its inhabitants. Now, this is one way that the man of violence can be characterized. But there is another way. As stated, this word translated as violence also carries with it the idea of injustice. And so, the same passage in the New King James Version is translated as follows. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. Again, this uh, term oppressor gives us more insight. The Violent man is an oppressor. It's someone who has power over others and uses that power in an unjust manner. The oppressor is the type of person who says things and they get done regardless of morality or legality. And so there is a real enticement to follow in the footsteps of an oppressor. This is why you see in countries um, sometimes when one dictator is disposed of, someone else comes into power and they themselves end up oppressing the people themselves. They taste the power before They had nothing, but now they have pleasures at their fingertips. They have an abundance of possessions and unique experiences. They can travel the world and do things that only, that you and I can only dream of. Again, the picture painted here is like that of the man In Psalm 73, the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And here's why. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, 
pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues parade through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. innocence. For I have become stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. And then there is a change. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of, uh, of God. Then, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Again, in Psalm 73, the psalmist is at first enamored with the prosperity of the arrogant. Psalmist is caught up in the lifestyles of the rich and famous. He was envious of the oppressor and the man of violence until, it says, he had perceived their end. Now, this leads us then to our final point this morning, which is the cure for envy. The cure for envy. You see, the wise son needs to keep the big picture in mind. He must not just focus on a part, but on the whole as well. He must not only look at the short term, but he must consider the long term. You see, there is a consideration that the wise son must make. There is a truth that must always be kept before his eyes, and that truth is the end. Stated differently, the wise son must have an eternal perspective. And so, young men, don't just focus on making a lot of money whilst you're here on earth, but also you need to fix your eyes to heaven and store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For what profit would there be for you to gain the whole world, but then... To lose your soul. Now, in the first place, to have an eternal perspective, 
you must have faith. You must believe that all the promises of God, both in blessings and cursing, are real. To put it another way, faith is the cure. It is the cure both for the unbeliever as well as for the believer. For the unbeliever, you must lay hold of Christ by faith. But also for the believer who battles with envy, you too must go back to the gospel and remember, recall the promises of God in Christ. Again, what you believe to be true about the end will determine what you choose or what you don't choose. Young man, young woman, adult, do not be deceived. What you choose will be based upon what you believe. If you believe in the prosperity of the oppressor, then that is what you will choose and that is what you will pursue. But if you believe that their end is destruction and that Christ is the only way of salvation, then you will not choose any of their ways. Again, Solomon pleads with his sons. He says, do not choose any of his ways. If I could put it differently, don't choose Egypt, choose heaven. Say, what do I mean? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, we are reminded of this truth. It says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Again, Egypt has its passing pleasures, but the end of it is slavery. The end of it is death. Therefore, you need to do like the psalmist and instead consider the end. Consider their end as well as the reward at the end. Again, what do I mean? Backing up in the same 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the verse 6, we, say, we read, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God rewards those who seek him. 
And so suffering now for Christ cannot be compared with the riches in the age to come. Do you believe this? Now, I know we often don't speak like this in reform circles because we believe in the sovereignty of God, which the Bible affirms. We also believe in the responsibility of man. And so I want to say it like this. Young man, young woman, adult, like Moses, choose Christ. Today is laid before you the way of life and death. And listen to how Solomon makes the contrast in the following verses. Again, in verse 32, he says, For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. Now, this word devious means to turn aside or to depart. It's the same word that is used back up in verse 21 of Proverbs chapter 3. In speaking of verse 21, I remind you again, Solomon says, My son, let them not vanish. Speaking of wisdom, let them not vanish. That's our same word from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And so... Those who turn aside or turn away from the way of truth, as the text says, are an abomination to the Lord. These are strong words and for some grievous words. It reminds me of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, which states, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy command handed on to them. Now, I pray that in the case of some, that it is indeed not a true apostasy. I pray that God may yet turn them. But to the rest of you children, do not take any ease or comfort in the fact that you have not made a verbal profession of faith. This warning still applies to you as well. You too know the way of righteousness. You too have been taught the paths of life from youth. In the day of judgment, it would be better for some pagan child in some remote part of the world who has never heard the gospel than it will be for those of you who have grown up in church, heard the way of life, and the truth about the gospel, and then to reject that way. Again, faith in Christ 
is the only cure. For without faith, you will be enticed by the wicked. You will follow after the ways of the oppressor and the man of bloodshed. Young man, young woman, only Christ can keep you. Morality is not enough. Education is not enough. Political affiliation is not enough. Financial stability is not enough. Only Christ is sufficient. Again, in contrast to the devious, it says that the Lord is intimate with the upright. Now, this word intimate here is a word that means counsel. It is the idea of fellowship and conversation between friends. In fact, the word is translated as friendship in relationship to God in Job chapter 29, verse 4, and as fellowship in Psalm 55, verse 14. Now, again, the idea is not that we become God's counselors, for who can counsel the one who knows all things? Rather, the idea is that we become counseled by God. God instructs us and makes known to us the way of righteousness. It's like Jesus says in John 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, this is what God is to the upright. He is a friend and a counselor. Again, children, consider the outcome of the oppressor and the outcome of the wise son. Solomon continues on, he says, The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Now, again, it might look like from a worldly perspective that the oppressor is prospering. But have you ever sat down and considered that that prosperity that they're experiencing might in fact be the judgment of God. If you remember in the parable of the soils and the sower in Mark chapter 4, there was seed that fell among the thorns. And uh, Jesus, in explaining the meaning of the parable, he, he, he says that the thorns are the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches, and he adds other things. Those things choke out the word. They cause the word from penetrating to the heart and bringing about true, true change. Again, don't be envious of the oppressor for the wealth that you envy is the very thing that keeps them out of the kingdom of God. Worse yet, they are deceived 
about their own state. They say that I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And they do not know that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They do not see that a curse is upon their house. But again, for the wise son, it says that the Lord blesses their dwelling. The Lord shows them favor and goodness, even while there might be a lack of material possessions. Verse 34, Solomon says that he gives the wise son grace, while in contrast, the Lord scoffs at the scoffer. The Lord laughs at the wicked, but the laughter is one of scorn. Now, ultimately, the outcome is summarized in verse 35, which states, the wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. This is the end of the wise as contrasted with the end of the fool. The text says that the wise inherits honor, but the fool displays honor. Now this word displays actually means to rise up. And so the same verse is translated in the LSB as follows. It says, the wise will inherit glory, but fools raise up disgrace. Or as the KJV puts it, the wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. And so in the end, the reward of fools will be disgrace and shame, while the inheritance of the wise will be honor and glory. Again, I come back to faith. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that hell is the ultimate disgrace and shame, while heaven is the ultimate honor? Do you even believe that there is such a thing as hell or heaven? Do you believe that there is a God in heaven who has sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ? Do you believe that this son died on behalf of sinners of which you are? And do you believe that in his living and in his dying, that your sins can be forgiven. You see again, that faith is crucial to overcoming envy. Without faith, you will envy the oppressor and the man of bloodshed. You will desire his possessions, and you will choose his ways. Ultimately, you will depart from the righteous path. And to depart from the righteous path 
is to be promoted to dishonor and shame. Let me, in closing, give you a somewhat lengthy quote from Charles Bridges as he comments on verse 35 of Proverbs. He writes, This is the last contrast drawn to restrain our envy at the prosperity of the wicked. It carries us forward to eternity. The difference between these two classes is not always shown to man's vision, but the day cometh when all shall discern in the full light of eternity. This much is clear. The value of our inheritance is beyond all price. It is happiness unspeakable. It's security unchangeable. It's duration eternity. The wise shall inherit glory. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament forever and ever. Oh, will the fools then discover the vanity of this world's glory too late to make a wise choice. Shame is their present fruit. Honor even now sits unseemingly upon them. But what fruit will eternity bring? Of those things whereof they will be then ashamed. Truly, shame will be their promotion. Their fame, their fame will be infamous. Their disgrace conspicuous. Lifting them up like Haman upon his elevated gallows. A gazing stock to the world. How solemn and complete will be the great separation for eternity. Many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Amen. Let's go to Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray once more that you would take your word to accomplish in the hearts of your people all that you have sought to accomplish this day. Once more, we beseech you, Lord, in the giving of life to those who do not know you, that you might take your word, that you might, by your Holy Spirit, convict and point them to Christ that you might regenerate and that you might grant the gifts of faith and repentance, that they might lay hold of Christ this day. Lord, we pray once more for your people, Lord. We pray that if we ever find ourselves wandering from the paths of righteousness, that we might once more focus our eyes on the big picture that we might set our eyes back upon Christ and consider the end. Lord, I pray that 
you would work in the hearts of your people, even as we wrestle with remaining sin and corruption, and yes, even unbelief. Lord, I pray that you would cause faith to grow in our hearts, that we might trust you more, that we might stare more intently at your beautiful law and consider the riches of the ages to come, that we might consider Christ, that we might consider all of the promises tied to Christ, as well as we, as we may consider the end of the wicked. And that instead of being envious of the wicked, that we might instead have compassion, that we might cry out on their behalf, that the riches that they pursue, that the blinders may be taken off and that they might view their true estate as naked and wretched and blind and poor without Christ. Lord, we pray that you would continue to give us a zeal and a compassion for the lost. We pray, Lord, that even as we have looked at in Proverbs 3, that it might cause us to consider the ways in which we go after other gods and any way in which we are unfaithful in marriage, that we might consider the, the weightiness of those things, the weightiness of the sins of idolatry and the weightiness of the sins of adultery, that might, once again, the word that is being preached, might it draw the hearts of, re, of your people back onto you. May you accomplish all that you have sought to do this day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.